Good morning. It's great to be with you again today. And I am deeply blessed by the music and the truth it contains that we've been sharing together this morning. And really appreciate everyone who's involved in preparing that and and leading us in that. I'd like to begin today with a picture. And you might recognize this scene. In fact, some of you might have actually been to this place. This is Niagara Falls. And of course, this is one of the wonders of our beautiful nation and uh, creation of God that we enjoy. And it's beautiful, it's vast, extremely powerful, and it's just an amazing place. Well, one man decided that he wanted to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And if you look closely at this picture, you can see there's a little dot, a little, maybe looks like a stick out there in the middle. Well, that is Nick Walinda. And in 2012, Nick Walinda walked across on a two-inch cable suspended from the United States side of Niagara Falls to the Canadian side. And it was about an 1,800-foot span, 250 feet above the chasm, and he walked across that. He did it at night, and because of, of course, the force of the water, mist was lifting up off of the water, and there was a little bit of a breeze And you don't see it in this picture, really, but uh, the way the cable is suspended or was suspended, it actually sloped downward from the the side that he was walking from and then formed a belly in the middle and then ascended to the other side. So he was walking downhill and then back uphill as he made his way across. Now, you can imagine, it just takes a lot of uh, nerve and courage to be able to do this. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time walking on a log across a stream. You know, you're out in the woods, and uh, there's this ditch or a gully or a stream, and you're thinking, how can I get across? And there's a convenient, a tree has conveniently fallen across, and you think, well, I'll just walk across that log. And then, uh, you know, I get up there, and I look at it, I put one foot on it, it wobbles a little bit, feels a little slippery, and I think, oh, I'm not so sure I want to do that. So, so I sit down and scoot across, right? That's the, that's the easy way to do it. Some people would just kind of prance right across there like it's uh, no problem at all, and that's fine because they have confidence. I want to use this as an analogy of our Christian walk because it does take confidence to walk as Christians. And as we're looking together at Hebrews chapter 10, we've been talking about a better way to live because the writer of Hebrews has presented Jesus Christ as the one who is supreme above all, and he is the superior sacrifice for sins and priest who makes that sacrifice, and he has opened the way for us to God. But all of that leads to a better way to live, and that's what we're focusing on as I spend time with you here in the book of Hebrews on these Sundays that we're together. And just like walking a tightrope requires confidence, the Christian walk requires confidence as well. And there are forces that oppose us, there are circumstances that might distract us or even discourage us. And there are times when we grow weak, times when we might go wobbly and think, you know what, I'm just going to plop down right here, I'm not going any further. Or, I'm heading back, this is not where I want to be. The writer of Hebrews is urging us forward, saying, nope, you need to keep going, you need to press on, you need to walk with God and live out your life for God. And so that's what we're looking at today. I'd like to read our text for us in Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a beautiful text of scripture, and you can see how the writer is taking everything that he's been talking about and that we've been looking at together for the past couple of weeks and applies it to our lives and says, now, with that confidence, here's how you need to begin to live. And I think he recognizes the fact that on the the part of the Jewish believers he was writing to, there was a potential of losing their confidence. They were facing persecution. Uh, Some of their families were rejecting them. They might have been losing income because people in their communities would not do business with them. It was growing extremely difficult for them, and it was probably going to get even worse. And so they, they might have been had some, some reasons on their mind for losing confidence. And I think the writer alludes to those. And, and I want to, to derive some implications from what he says. The text doesn't directly say they had these problems or these reasons for lacking or losing confidence. But I think it's definitely implied here, and I'll show you what I mean. If you look at verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. For any of us who are engaged in sin or have sinned in our past, as we all have, There's a sense of guilt that goes with that. And even if you're a Christian, you can be plagued with regret or feelings of guilt from your past. All of us continue to struggle with sin. And as you and I face our sinfulness every day, we could be plagued with guilt and shame because of that. And so what he's doing here is he's taking this truth of, of what Jesus has done, and he's lifting out this experience that those people might have been having. When he talks about an evil conscience, he's talking about that part of you that reminds you or alerts you to your sin and your sinfulness. And evil means that it's signaling that evil has been done. Or we might say it is tainted by evil. And so the idea he's talking about here is that because of your sins, your conscience has been evil. It has signaled you that sin was done. And that signal can continue to go off. And it might even be because of our own memories of the sins we've committed. It may be that Satan, the accuser, brings those sins up against us. And we become plagued by this lingering sense of shame. Uh, How many of you have a pet dog? All right, does your dog ever do anything bad? You ever come home, if you've left the dog out, you come home and, and the dog has uh, torn up, you know, some uh, piece of cloth or gotten into the trash can and, you know, strewn trash everywhere, and you walk in, and what does your dog do? Kind of has that, that look of shame, right? That, that shame face. It's kind of funny. It's like, why, why do they do that? Do they really have a conscience, you know? 
but they sure show it on, on their faces and the way they, they act guilty, don't they? It's really fascinating. Well, sometimes we as Christians can have that feeling of shame and that sense of shame and even cower in, in our sense of our relationship with God and, and not feel like we can even speak to God or we have access to God or God is upset with us and angry with us. And that lingering sense of shame can cause us to lose confidence. Our memories of sin, our struggles with sin, past sins we've committed, current struggles we have with sin can cause us to lose our confidence. But then also, I think he addressed here the powerful draw of the familiar and secure. Notice he says in verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Again, why would he say that? Well, because they potentially were wavering or could waver. They could get weak. They could go wobbly. They might tend to say, I want to go back from where I came, thinking in terms of their, their religion, their, their, uh, their Judaism, and their families, and their communities. They'd left that behind, many of them, when they followed Christ. In fact, this word wavering has the idea of leaning back, Leaning back toward that old covenant. Leaning back to that priestly system. And so there was the powerful draw for, to, of, of for them what had been familiar and secure. There was a gravitational pull. And you might feel this at times. If you have become a Christian and you were saved out of a religion or a belief system that required good works or that required you to follow certain ceremonies or perform rituals, and there's a sense of security in the externalism of that. There's a comfort in, in the regularity of that. There is certainly a familiarity with those people and, and the language, the verbiage that goes with that. And there might be a pull back toward that. Or it might just be the friends and the family members that, that you've had. And, and you've had to, to step away from even not because you want to leave those people behind, but because of the beliefs. There's now a a distance there between you and them, and there's a a perceived draw there toward them. I think there can even be a draw of what is comfortable and secure that you observe in the lives of people in the world around you, of unbelievers. You look around and you see people who are not saved and are not living godly lives, and yet everything seems to be going really well. They're making good money. Their families seem happy. They're taking fun, exciting trips. And they just seem to be living life and loving it all the way. And you think, well, here I am a Christian, and I'm suffering along, and we're having these family issues, and I'm barely getting by. You know, there was a man who struggled with that. His name was Asaph, and he wrote Psalm 73. And he struggled with what he termed the prosperity of the wicked. And he was describing that scenario where it seems like the ungodly people are so successful and so happy and seem to be thriving. But he arrived at the conclusion when he said, then I understood their end, the ultimate destination. Because everything might look really good on the outside and very comfortable and prosperous materially and on a temporal level, And yet, a person can be headed for eternity without God and without Christ. And that's what's most important, isn't it? And there's a perspective there, and he reached that, arrived at that perspective, and and formed a conclusion, and and, and he said, 
Who do I have in heaven but you? Who do I have on earth except you? My flesh and my heart fail, Asaph said in Psalm 73, 26. But you are the strength of my heart and my portion, my possession forever. He had that eternal perspective. But, you know, we can look around us, can't we? And become discouraged by the prosperity, the success that we see in this world and be discouraged by that and even tend to lose our confidence and draw back. So this writer recognizes the reality that there are elements and forces in your environment and in yourself that will shake your confidence. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? He's pointing us forward now. He's urging us on. And as he does that, I think he recognizes another element that could be a problem for us, a perceived lack of understanding and support. And again, I'm I'm taking what I see as an implication here in the text. If you notice in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Sometimes if we're struggling and we're having a hard time, we might tend to pull back from being with people. We don't necessarily want to put ourselves in that position of vulnerability where where people realize that we're struggling. Or we might have a sense of, you know, I think I can do this myself. I can handle this on my own. And what we can develop is kind of an, an isolationist mentality that, you know, I've just got to make it myself and I'm struggling along and nobody's really aware. And this writer is saying, no, you've got a group of people that are in place to support you and encourage you. And so we'll talk about that more in a few minutes, but I do think there's an implication there that that there might have been a a perceived lack of understanding and support, and he's addressing that. So as we get discouraged, as we get distracted, as we might become disillusioned, he's saying, don't stay in that place. Don't stop at that spot. Certainly don't turn back and, and go backwards from where you are. He urges us and points us forward. And so he really emphasizes here our reason for confidence, our reason for confidence. And in verses 19 and 20 and 21, he's reviewing what he's just described, the truth he's been presenting earlier in chapter 10. And that is everything that we have been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And you'll see he touches on it here in these verses. In verse 19, we can enter the holy places. We have access to God by the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross. Remember, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by his shed blood. By the new and living way that he opened for us. Remember, Jesus not only satisfied God's justice, but he qualified to be in God's presence when we cannot. We can't do God's will perfectly. Jesus did, and he is our intercessor and our mediator, opens the way to God through the curtain, that may be an allusion to the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and only the high priest once a year could go into that holy of holies in the Jewish system. And when Jesus died, what happened to that veil in the temple? It was torn top to bottom, signifying that that way was open. And here he's saying that 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 curtain, that Jesus' flesh, in a similar way, was torn opening the way for us to God when Jesus died on the cross in our place and rose again. And since we have a great high priest, he is our mediator. He is the one who represents us, but he is the perfect mediator because he doesn't have to represent himself. He can represent us completely and perfectly. 
And so because of all of this, the way to God has been opened by Jesus through his sacrifice, his opening up the way to God, and his mediation in our place as a priest. It is done. And the writer emphasizes twice, we have this confidence. We have this access. So you and I are in permanent, um, complete, permanent, present possession of all of these blessings. It is done, and you can accept it by faith. Now, how do we do that in daily life? In fact, have you ever heard the term uh, preach the gospel to yourself or preach the gospel to yourself daily? That, that's a great phrase. Uh, but what does it mean? It's the kind of thing that you might see in a book or somebody posts it up and you know starts sharing it and it gets, gets a bunch of likes. So preach the gospel to yourself every day. Amen. That sounds really good. But what is that? How do you do that? Well, I think that is what what he's urging us to do here in this text. When he says in verse 19, therefore, and then rehearses and reviews those elements which are the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose again. Jesus secured the way to God for us. We have been washed. We have been cleansed. We've been purified. And then he says, let us, verse 22 and 23 and 24. So he's taking those gospel truths and applying them to life. So we might say he's preaching the gospel to Christians. And we can take that idea and personalize that and and say, yes, we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves. Well, I need some help with understanding a little bit of what that looks like. And there's actually an author that has talked about this. You might be familiar with the, the name Jerry Bridges. Jerry Bridges has written uh, The Pursuit of Holiness, Trusting God, uh, Respectable Sins, some very helpful books on the Christian life. And Bridges has taken this idea of preaching the gospel to yourself and, and made it very clear and specific. I don't know if he's the one that originated the term. It's possible. But he at least helps to, to make it clear and understandable. And listen to what he says. He says, when you set yourself to seriously pursue holiness, you will begin to realize what an awful sinner you are. Have you found that to be true? So if you get serious about growing as a Christian, if you really make up your mind that you're going to to purge sinful attitudes and practices out of your life and you're going to become more like Christ, what does that do? All of a sudden, it's like your, your, your pride and your selfishness and your lust and and anger just start to rear their ugly head. It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought I was leaving that behind. It's like trying to to grow actually brings them out even more. That's what he's saying. We become conscious of those things. So when that happens, he says, if you're not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged and will slack off in your pursuit of holiness. That's true, too. So if I'm trying to grow, trying to be like Christ, trying to obey God, trying to live this Christian life, and all of a sudden I find myself thinking, being more aware of of how sinful I am, that could be discouraging. And I might say, you know what, I'm going to stop right here, or I'm turning back. He says this is where we see the importance of preaching the gospel to yourself. So what does it mean? It means you continually face up to your own sinfulness, 
and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. You appropriate by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God and that he is your propitiation and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. So it's believing the truth of of what Jesus did for you. But then he goes further and he says, "Here's, here's what I do every day. Bridges says, I begin each day with the realization that despite my being a saint, I still sin every day in thought and word and deed and motive. And I acknowledge those to God. What do we call that? It's confession, right? Lord, I am prideful today. From the moment I get up, it's there. And I'm, I'm self-centered and, and I, I have anger toward these people and you know, I don't really care what my parents think or what they want me to do. I want to do, do what I want to do. Or, Lord, you know that, that I'm going into this day as a teenager and I really care a lot about what people think about me, my friends and people online, and I want their approval. I want them to, to like me and to affirm me. I want them to think I'm cool. Or as an adult, I'm going to the workplace and you know what? I'm, I'm totally motivated to, to please my boss and make money, and that's about it. Glorifying God, it's just not really in my mind as I go into this. Or, or as a parent, or in school settings, or with, with family members, Lord, I, I, I confess I'm self-centered. I confess materialism. I confess lust. You know I struggle with this sin in my heart. I've been wrestling with it for so long, and I know that today I'm going to have lustful thoughts. We just acknowledge it. We're open about it. It's okay to do that. That's not being ashamed. That's just being honest. And we can be completely honest with God. So Bridges talks about that confession generally and even specifically about the sins that we know we're committing. And then he says, I acknowledge those to God and then I apply specific scriptures that assure me of God's forgiveness of those sins I've just confessed. So specific truths from God's word, specific verses of the Bible that say those are under the blood of Christ. By God's grace, you're forgiven. Those have been washed away. You are right with God. And and ladies and gentlemen, a great passage to do that with is the one that we're in right now, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 10, or back up, chapter 9, chapter 10, just completely lays out the truth of the gospel and other verses that you come across in your reading or that you're familiar with. So we review those scriptural truths and we say, I claim these for myself. These are strong assurances of God's forgiveness. And then he says, I generalize the scripture's promises of God's forgiveness to my whole life. In other words, you are under grace. God's forgiveness applies to you generally. You are in a right standing with God. He is your father. You're his child. So that's an example of of this idea of, of applying the gospel And so what I think the writer here is urging us to do is just that. Therefore, let us apply the gospel to yourself and to your life on a regular basis, even daily. Review what Jesus did for you. Remember your standing with God and rejoice in that and be thankful for it. But again, he's moving us forward. He's he's not wanting us to just stay, you know, in a place where we're thinking about theological truth but we're actually living it out. We're actually living this new life with confidence. And so he urges us toward acts of confidence in verse 22. Let us, first of all, what? Enjoy being close to God. 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Objectively, you are in a right standing with God. But there's a conscious awareness of that where we say, yes, I accept this truth. But there's also a personal experience of drawing close to God. What was it James says in James 4.8? Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. There's a closeness of fellowship and communion that we experience with him. And because of Christ, you can enjoy the presence of God. As one commentary says, each new covenant worshiper should approach God in the conscious enjoyment of freedom from guilt. With God, you are not waiting outside the door, kind of peeking around the edge and seeing if he's in a good mood, and then sort of stepping gingerly into the the throne room of God and with, with shame face, hoping he isn't upset with you, Maybe he'll, he'll acknowledge your presence and recognize you and invite you to come closer. No. You're the king's child. You're welcome anytime. You just prance right in. Abba, Father. And you can open your heart in prayer. You can praise him and thank him. You can ask him for what you need. You can tell him about your day that's ahead and what's hard about it and asking for his help with it. You can acknowledge the sins that you commit, not flippantly, but but just honestly, with confidence knowing that he does accept, he does forgive. It's not because of you, it's because of Christ. You, You are completely accepted, as Paul says in Ephesians 1. You are accepted in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. You are in the door, you are in the room, you are at his feet, you are held by his hand. He is your Abba Father, and you come with a true heart. That is complete trust and devotion. And you don't have to go anyplace else. You don't have to talk to somebody else. You don't have to rehearse a formula. You don't have to feel good about your relationship with God. You have access to Him, and you can enjoy that nearness. And by the way, this is true of us, not only personally and individually, but corporately as well. When we come together as the body of Christ, we can come with, with joyful anticipation of singing our songs and praying our prayers and, and fellowshipping with each other, knowing that we do so in the presence of God, and He loves it. He welcomes it. He is delighted with it. And there's a joy, there's an enjoyment of that experience. Draw near to confess sin. Draw near to ask for help. Draw near when you need comfort. God, I'm hurting. You know my heart is broken right now, and I'm asking you for comfort. Draw near to say thanks. Draw near to to get wisdom. Lord, I've got to have wisdom for this situation. Please grant me wisdom. We can ask with boldness. Draw near to ask for your daily bread. Lord, I, I just trust you to give me what I need, and there's some uncertainty, or even if there isn't uncertainty, it looks like things are going to be okay, but Lord, I trust you for my daily bread. And, and draw near just to enjoy God. You just enjoy being close to the Lord? Well, you can. When that shame goes away, we can just rejoice in our fellowship in Him. So, let us. You can, and you should, enjoy being close to God. And then he urges us to maintain our hold. 
But I think he says it in a way that tells us to, to keep your hold on what holds you. Interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's like the, the scenario where one person is sliding off the edge of a precipice, you know, the side of a, a mountain or something, and the other person reaches down and, and, and holds on. And, and so the, the person who's falling is, is slipping and barely hanging on, but the, the person who's holding on is muscular and has their feet planted firmly and is able to, to pull the person back up. That's the idea here. Oh, yeah, we, we hold on, don't we? We hold on. But he's the one who is strong because he is, he is the faithful one. Maintaining your hold on what holds you. Let us hold fast. Meaning, live out your profession of faith. Your confession of hope. Your declaration of faith in Jesus. And trust in Jesus. And hope in Jesus. So don't let go of that. Don't turn away from that. Don't back off of it. Live out your profession of faith to the very end. And it's not because you're so strong or you're so determined or you're so mature as a believer. It's because he's faithful. His promises are sure. And when you are connected to those, you're not going anywhere because of his faithfulness. You might have noticed this when I had the first picture up. And this one zooms in a little bit closer to Nick Walenda. You see something behind him on the cable? That's like, um, kind of like maybe a, a train car would have, or maybe a, you know, a subway car would have uh, a piece that attaches to the rail and rides on that rail. That's what that is. And there's actually a cable going from his waist to that little device. And he's wearing a harness. Like, oh man, <laughs> you know, I thought he was so brave. I thought he was so courageous. He's attached. There's a safety harness there. Well, actually, his promoters, I think it might have been ABC, required him to do that because they did not want to be responsible if he fell to his death. So they said, you know what, if we're going we're gonna to pay for this and, and show this, you're, you're going to have to wear a safety harness. And he didn't want to, but reluctantly, he did. So yeah, it removes a little bit of the, you know, the sensationalism of it. And yet, when you're out there, and you're on a two-inch wide cable with the wind blowing in the dark and the mist rising, it's probably still pretty nerve-wracking, isn't it? It's still a little, little, little sketchy out there, a little shaky out there. But he knew that if he fell, that he was attached. And I think that's kind of the idea that the writer here is driving at for us. Yeah, when you're walking the walk, when you're living the life, it gets tough. Sometimes you're hanging on. Sometimes you're being blown sideways. Sometimes you can't totally see your way. You're growing weak. You're getting wobbly. You're thinking about sitting down. You're thinking about heading back where you came from. He says, just remember, you're attached. You're linked. Yeah, you're holding on. But there's somebody holding on to you who's much stronger, who is infinitely, perfectly faithful, who's always faithful. His promises are always true. And just hold on to him and keep going. And you know, there are times 
that cause our faith to waver, that cause us to grow weak, that cause us to, to feel like we, we can't go on. And there are people around us sometimes who falter and fail. Uh, there can be somebody that, that you deeply love, maybe highly respect. All of a sudden, you, their life just takes a turn, and you're just like, what happened? What happened to that person? And, and your faith can be shaken by that. Uh, you can face trauma in your family with, with a parent or a sibling or one of your adult children, and you're just going through an extremely hard time, and you're thinking, where, where is God in all this? And why is he allowing this to unfold the way it is? And, and your faith can grow shaky. And those are times to remember he's holding on to you. He is the faithful one. His promises are true. So just renew your confidence in those. Declare your commitment to those and rest in them and rely on them. There's so many examples of this just throughout history and even in our lives today, but let me share this one with you. Because this goes back to the time when close to when some of these people lived. And they faced some real challenges and difficulty when they decided to live for the Lord. And these weren't necessarily uh, Jewish believers that this is about, but they were believers. During the second century, or the, the 100s, so not very long after Christ lived and the apostles and the first churches were born and the gospel was spreading and people were being saved, So from 111 to 113 A.D., there was a man by the name of Pliny, Pliny the Younger. And he was the governor of the region of Pontus Bithynia in the Roman Empire. The Romans ruled this whole region at the time. And he served under the emperor Trajan. We actually have letters that Pliny wrote to the emperor Trajan reporting on his responsibilities and asking for advice, specifically about how to deal with these pesky Christians. Listen to what he said. It is my practice, my Lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can give better guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I've never participated in trials of Christians, so I don't know what offenses we should punish or investigate and to what extent. And I've not been a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or Difference between the very young and the more mature, whether pardon is granted if they repent, meaning if they repent of being a Christian, or if once a man has been a Christian, it does him no good to have ceased. Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I've observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, meaning confessed Christ, I interrogated a second and a third time threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. What's he saying? They tried these Christians. They interrogated them once, a second time, another time. And if they continued to say, Jesus is my Lord... I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. If they held fast to their confession, he describes them as stubborn and obstinate. What a great description of a Christian who holds on to their confession of faith. Who says, it doesn't matter what's about to happen to me. 
I confess Christ. So don't you think that we believers today, regardless of our circumstances, however annoying, inconvenient they may be, however trying and wearing they might be, or however traumatic and even fatal they may be, we can hold fast our confession. We can continue to confess Christ. And that's what he is urging us, that's what the writer of Hebrews is urging us to do, to maintain our hold on what holds us. And then he urges us to not only draw confidence for ourselves and press on ourselves, but also to kindle someone else's fire. And this is what we have in verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word stir up is the idea of stimulate, to, to influence other people. In fact, it has a little bit of a, of a nasty edge to it. In fact, it's used of, of, of people who are, are actually hurting each other, hostile toward each other in the way they treat each other. He's not telling us to be mean and nasty, but he's saying, hey, he's saying, listen, you got to urge each other on. You have to confront each other sometimes and say, hey, keep going. We need to keep going here. So we stir each other up. We, we kindle each other's fire. What are some reasons that we might, again, draw back from this gathering? And that's what he's talking about. Are people that, that are isolated, people who are drifting, people who are drawing away from, from coming together as believers. Uh, one, one commentary by F.F. Bruce lists some reasons for neglecting this gathering. Uh, laziness. Want to sleep in, right? Uh, levity. I think what he means by that is not thinking it's that important, or maybe being distracted by more fun things in life. Well, there's all kinds of fun things you can do on a Sunday morning, aren't there? Especially on a beautiful fall day. Weariness. Just I'm tired physically. I'm tired of in life. I'm tired of going to church. Superiority. Well, I don't really need to be with those people. They've got their problems, but I don't really need need that. I shouldn't be hanging out with them. Fear. Fear of persecution, fear of what people will think. False teaching. So believing a wrong teaching from God's word that, that draws people away. And then I just added one, Lone Ranger Christianity. Just thinking that, that you can do it on your own. Thinking that you don't need each other. These are all elements that can cause us to drift or to draw away. What he's saying is, you know what? You need to come together, not just for yourself, but so that you can actually encourage other people. I had been on a lengthy trip overseas several years ago to visit some of the missionaries our church supported. And I had poured myself into them, encouraging them, and just spending time with them, and also preach numerous times in those settings, and then, of course, just travel can, can exhaust you. And I arrived back uh, to our home area midweek, and uh, we had a midweek service with a Bible study and prayer. And a man in the church was leading the Bible study time. It wasn't a pastor. One of our men had been asked to uh, speak that night. And so I went to the service and sat down, and he was teaching. And as he was teaching, I realized how, how thirsty I was spiritually. 
how hungry my heart was. I just began to soak in the instruction he was giving from the word of God, and it fed my hungry soul. It breathed life into my, my weary heart. And then we broke up in little prayer groups, like you know you often do in prayer meeting, and just prayed together with, with a few guys. And again, it was like I was just being lifted up and, and, and carried and strength infused into me. And I had the realization that for me as a pastor, it helped me understand for church people, for people who, who just go through life and they're at work and they're facing you know, secular world and, and sinful influences and temptations and resistance and just all those things, that, that when, when we gather, it's a time of spiritual nourishment and refreshment and encouragement. And that's how it should be, isn't it? Martin Luther said it this way. He said, at home in my own house, there's no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. And hopefully that's what you experience here. By being with other believers, that a fire is kindled in your heart. And remember, you don't just come to get it, you come to do it for somebody else. So it's important that you're here. We need each other. Being together strengthens us, increases our confidence, and encourages us to live. Don't hold back. Enjoy being close to God. Don't give up. Hold on to the one who is holding on to you. And don't drop out. Keep gathering the rhythm of life for believers and for the body of Christ. Keep gathering and going and gathering and going and gathering so that you can encourage each other and live your new life and the confidence that comes to us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for these truths. We ask that you would help us to remember them. I pray you'll help us to apply the specific ones that each of us needs today and this week and carry them with us and live them out by your grace. We trust the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray that it would all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.